So uh, last week we talked about Jeremiah 29 verses 4 to 7. This is the kind of the second part uh, of that particular passage. We are um, taking this whole month to really focus on the idea of what does it mean for us to be a people on Third and Howard. If we're called to be in this location, uh, what does it look like for us to do that? I'm not going to read this right now. Uh, we'll read it in just a moment, but uh, I wanted you to look at it again because this is the, like I said last week, the quintessential passage on a theology of the city. If you were to talk about what it means to be a kind of people that uh, engages in the city in really thoughtful and meaningful ways, to understand your context, or your context and be transformative as a group of people in it, this is a passage that most people look at. Uh, it's one that can guide us in many ways. And last week, I kind of shared three big ideas that I just want to remind you of very briefly. The first one is this, that we are called to be a city within a city. What I mean by that is that we are called to be a people of two places. One, we are called to be a people of this place, earth, of this place, Spokane, that we have responsibilities and obligations to this city and its people. But beyond that, we are also responsible as citizens of a heavenly kingdom. And far too often we've encouraged escapism in the church. And what I mean by that is we say, ah, at some point, none of this will matter. The only thing that will matter is uh, what takes place in heaven. So therefore, starting right now, we'll dismiss our responsibilities to the earth to care for it, to, to uh, be stewards of our responsibilities to this kingdom, and we'll only look to the heavenly kingdom. And so as a reminder that you are a dual citizen, and just because redemption is a part of your world, it does not change your participation in the culture, but rather because it changes you, it changes the way that you enact that participation. The second big idea that I talked about is that we're to put down roots or to live in the city. The text tells us to build houses and plant gardens. That's not just to find a place of shelter and to eat some food. The big idea behind that, that is to establish residency, to participate in the economic, the social, the cultural ethos of the city. To plant gardens is to become a taxpayer, to have a job, to make an honest living, to, to participate in the activities and the organizations within the city. And in really, in many ways, I didn't mention this last week, but in many ways, we should be the best citizens of Spokane because we enter into Spokane with our identities already intact. What I mean by that is that as a follower of Jesus, the very core of who you are is already identified. You, found, you find your value, your worth, your significance by being a child of God. And so everything that you operate out of other than that, puts you in a position to be one of the best citizens, the most, um, the person that's contributing the most, caring the most, and uh, invested the most, because you're both a part of the earthly kingdom and the heavenly kingdom. The last point that I mentioned is that we're to be long-haul people, uh, so people who are committed to this idea for a very long time. The passage reads, uh, that you are to settle in for generations. So it says, marry, have them take wives, have your kids take husbands and wives, and then have them 
have kids. You're talking three generations that are highlighted. And the idea, again, is that we are to be a people who are committed to this neighborhood and committed to this city over the long haul. In, day in, and day out, again, and again, and again. I think uh, too often that churches define their success by Sunday mornings. And I will tell you that we, as far as I know, have never and will never define our success by what happens from 9 to 11.30 a.m. on a Sunday morning. We define our success by what transformation is taking place in the city, what lives are being changed, the ways in which we are all on mission in the city. The success of a church is its impact over the long haul. It's not just there will be a a time where every one of us are no longer a part of this church. There will be a time that I will no longer in some way be a part of this church. I will pass. I will be called somewhere else. You will be called somewhere else. You will move. All of those things will happen. The question is, will the legacy, will the impact, will the investment carry on? If all we're worried about is what happens in this hour, we've missed the point of being people who are deeply invested in the well-being of the city. So we talked about those three big ideas. Today, we're looking at the last verse, verse 7 of Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7, and the text says this. But seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. I want to highlight three things that I think really speak to this idea of us being uh, for the city and seeking its shalom. The first is this. We are to take action for the city. We're actually to engage in the city. The phrase is to seek the welfare of the city. To define the word seek means to attempt or to desire to attain or achieve something. It assumes action. It assumes participation. To seek the shalom of the city means that we are active participants in its well-being, that we're not just spectators that we are participating in creating an urban life that's maybe in most ways an alternative to the way the rest of the city would understand life. That's why we in the New Testament are called the peculiar people. Not because we're just awkward and look weird, but simply because the way in which we enact faith is in such stark contrast to the world around us that people go, that's pretty peculiar, that's different, that's unique. And it's because we're active. It's because we're participating. We're pursuing community transformation. N.T. Wright describes it this way when he's talking about our responsibility. He says, we're called here and now, not some other time, but here and now, to be instruments of God's new creation, which has already been launched in Jesus, and of which Jesus' followers are supposed to be its agents. That means we're to participate in public activity. That means we're to tutor kids, to be involved in public schools, to volunteer and participate in school board or city government, to understand the complexity of real estate and housing markets, to understand the complexity of the economic structures in our city, the, the, uh, the disadvantaged and how transportation isn't helping them. We're to understand and learn and love and care for deeply our city 
and it requires us to be active, to be participating. Uh, many of you know that uh, one of the things I, I love to do is soccer, and a couple years ago, uh, Morgan Hartnoff and I put together a little thing called 90 Plus, and many of you have probably heard about it. Uh, but it is a way for us, a simple way, to try to engage with kids in the city, to actually say we care about their well-being, we care about their development, we care about their character, uh, that they would transform into leaders, that we could be people who would mentor them. And uh, so this Saturday, yesterday, we started um, our fall season. So it's the time of year, the weather has changed, and uh, everything is amazing on Saturday mornings. And um, we have six little kids' teams. And uh, I've got a picture of one of those teams. And a picture Michael doesn't know is going to be famous on the big screen. But uh, Michael's up here playing the bass. But Michael's also one of the coaches for 90+. Plus. And uh, of the six teams, uh, half of every team or more than half of every team uh, is really unable to pay. They can't afford to participate, or if they can, they can only afford some. And so then we raise money to supplement it. We put individuals in their lives to mentor. Uh, and the reason I show this is because it just kicked off yesterday. But the other reason I show it is because Michael's a perfect case of someone who said, I've got a passion, and, and I'm interested in figuring out how to participate. I want to be involved. I want to be engaged. And so he just chose one simple way to pour into the lives of students. Many of you are engaged in simple ways throughout the city to be active. My encouragement, I'm going to ask a question under each one of these, is this. How is God calling you, how is he calling me to be active in seeking the shalom of the city? Now that can happen inside of this building as we participate with one another, but it also happens in the city. It also happens being invested and engaged with neighbors, at work, with coworkers, stopping at the same cafe again and again, building relationships with people. All of it requires some investment if we're truly seeking the shalom of the city. The second big idea. In the passage it says, where I have sent, I being God, where I have sent you into exile, Here's the big idea. The you is a we. What I mean by that is the you in the passage is communal. Uh, I think many of us become guilty at times of reading our Bible from a singular perspective. So when we read you, we go, oh, yeah, you mean me. No, we mean we. It's almost always a communal book talking to a communal group of people who understand life through family, not through individual mindsets. And so almost a majority of the time when the Bible's talking and it uses me or I, it's more of a we understanding. That together we are accomplishing something, or in this case, in this passage, together we are called into something. And one of the things that I think we fail to recognize time and again when we talk about the idea of investing in the city is you were never meant to do it alone. It was always something you were called to do collectively. It's always been something we're called to do collectively. In fact, there, I, it would be a stretch for us to find a singular time in the New Testament in which someone is sent out and is sent out alone. In fact, uh, 
there's this one passage that speaks to it, Luke 10. Uh, when Jesus says the harvest is plentiful and the workers are few, right before it, he says this. The Lord appointed 72 others that were with his disciples, and he sent them two by two ahead of him in every town in every village. And what he's doing is he's sending them with a partner. He's sending them with another. There's never a time that I can recall, and maybe you can find one for me, where people are sent and they're sent solo. You're not meant to try to reach your neighbor for Christ by yourself. You're not meant to try to have an impact in your particular workplace just on your own. Even if you're in that workplace on your own as a follower of Jesus and feel like you're on your own, your design, your need is to include others in it. To have a work party and then invite other people to it. To find ways to have people from the outside praying for you that's on the inside. None of us are meant to accomplish it on our own. Um, To be truly successful at bringing shalom to the city, it requires others. I mentioned 90 plus, I'll mention it again. Uh, Here's another picture of one of our other teams. It's a major plug for 90 plus this week. Um, So this happens to be the particular team that I coach. I mentioned them the other day, seven-year-old girls, okay? Um, Half of the team has never played organized soccer before, and three-quarters of the team can't afford to pay for it. Uh, We have uh, a girl named Tibian from Africa. We have a girl named Nasreen from Africa. Uh, We have um, a girl um, named Subeda from Africa. Then we have uh, several other kids in the community, and um, all of them are just eager to play. All of them want to be around other kids their age, all wanting to learn and grow. Uh, But here's the reason I bring this particular team up. Nasreen can't even speak English. She only speaks Arabic. Uh, She just learned to count to 10 and counted to 10 in practice the other day, and all the other girls cheered for her because it was the first time. She can say please and thank you, and just about everything else uh, is really difficult. Um, Tibian speaks only English but understands Arabic. So she at times translates for us. When uh, Nasreen says something and none of us have any clue what she's saying, then Tibian's like, oh, this is what she said, but I can't say anything back to her, right? So it, <laughs> it, it, it is a zoo at practice. The, the thing that is most fascinating about it is that we have a group of people kind of surrounding this team. And it would be impossible to coach this team by myself. I have coached many teams and tried to do it on my own, but this team, it would be impossible. It's like coordinating a small village. Uh, We have, uh, I swing by and pick up Nasreen in West Central. Uh, Someone else picks up um, Tibian over by Logan. Um, Leah picks up Subeda up on the South Hill. Uh, We all drive to a certain location. Julie's coordinating, texting parents. Shannon's calling moms and dads and saying, we're going to swing by at this time. There, it, like, it is many hands on deck just to get kids to practice. And then from there to figure out how to get them to games and to know what size uniforms they are as they're like wearing these things that are supposed to fit, but like dresses, right? I bring it up because there's this African proverb that says, 
if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. I think that has to be a very significant value for us as a community. It is impossible to do what we are being called to do in this city if we're to do it alone. We need each other. We cannot possibly do it on our own. It is part of why we moved here. You realize that. that we were trying to be faithful in the space we were. We had no aspirations to be in another space. And yet all the time we were being confronted with this idea of we are partnering with others and those others need space. And we would have never moved to this location if it wasn't for the idea of partnership. There are seven other organizations that are partnered with us every single week and using this building. I mean, I I would venture to say that one of the most underutilized resources in all of the Christian kingdom is church buildings. They happen to be used on a Sunday for a set time, and then they go void of any use all week long except maybe one person sitting in an office or a few people in there answering phones. And the truth of the matter is the building just goes without use all week long, and it is a community good. It is for others beyond just ourselves. There is no ownership on this building by anyone other than Christ. And it's our responsibility to take this building and use it all week long to accomplish as much mission as possible. And so whether it's Youth for Christ moving in and putting a recording studio upstairs and inviting kids in all week long to to make music and, and to figure out how to do podcasts and to learn how to communicate their message with people, whether it's uh, Young Life inviting kids down from the hill, the LC, right after school, or coming over for lunch, or playing pickleball in the gym, whether it's 90-plus using the gym for kids and after-school programming, whether it's Kaleo who gathers in here on Sunday nights, we want the building to be used constantly because it is a resource for this community, and it also signifies that we are in it together. When you pray for a new community, you should be also praying for every other church in the city because we are part of one body that is much bigger than ourselves. And for us to just be focused on who we are and just focused on our mission, I think sells short what God has called us to do. We have to partner and we have to participate together. And so my question for each of us is this. Who, with who is God calling you to link arms in seeking the shalom of the city? Who are you to participate with? Who are you to invite in? It leads to our final uh, little section of the passage that says this, to pray to the Lord on its behalf. To pray to the Lord on its behalf. Now, the Hebrew word for pray in this particular section means to fall down. That's literally what it means. Um, it's described of, of Moses, it's described of um, others in Isaiah 45 as falling down and pleading before God, calling out with like this desperate need and saying, we are inviting you, God, to do something. It, uh, it is often described in the Bible, the same word is used to speak of interceding on someone else's behalf. So it's me praying for someone else 
because either they can't pray for themselves or they need someone else to take up their cause. That's kind of the idea behind it. And I think there's two things that are necessary for us to be the kind of people that pray in that particular way. And the first one is compassion. The Bible speaks of Jesus' compassion. In Matthew 14, it says that he came on a great crowd and had deep compassion for him. The word used there, I've described it before, is he had this pain in his gut. This like He felt it to his very bowels, is what the text says. That means it ripped him apart on the inside. He had such a deep compassion. Another passage in Mark 1 says that he was moved with pity. In Matthew 9, it says that he's moved to great compassion. Over and over, you see this uh, represented by Christ. But one of the things that you've also heard is that in um, Luke 19.41, it says that as he drew near to the city of Jerusalem, or in our case, as we draw near to the city of Spokane, that he wept for the city. And the Greek word there for weep is not just like he had a tear or two. It's not just like um, guys at the movies when you're there and it's like a film that you're like, oh, wow, that was really moving, but you don't really want to let everyone in the theater know you cried. And so you just kind of like, oh, I just had something in my eye, that kind of thing, right? He's not moved that way. It literally, the, in the Greek, would indicate that he's bawling, he's weeping, he's crying, like convulsed crying, because it matters so much to him. That the, he sees the city, he sees the need, and he just weeps. It's very similar to Esther asking all of Israel to weep and to fast for the people of Israel. It's like Nehemiah saying, I am broken because I see my city in ruins and it breaks my heart and I weep for it. Over and over you see this throughout the scriptures, but I think the key is this idea of compassion. In fact, in Luke uh, 19.41, it says he drew near and he saw the city and wept. And I, I think we will never weep until we actually draw near. It, it, unless you're close enough to touch the city and the people in it, unless you're close enough to know the stories to sit with people and hear what is happening in their lives. It's in those moments that compassion is developed. It's in those moments that you and I actually care, and it moves us enough to tears. Pope Francis said, Today's world needs to weep. The marginalized weep. Those left aside weep. The scorned weep. But those of us who lead a life more or less without needs don't know how to weep. Certain realities of life are only seen with eyes cleansed by tears. The story is told of William Booth, uh, the great founder of uh, the Salvation Army. He and his wife kind of did amazing, amazing work. You should read about them sometime. Uh, but one time he was asked, like, do you need more volunteers? Do you need more people? Do you need somebody to help? And he was always saying, yes, we need people. Yes, we need people. Yes, we need people. And then uh, the people came to him one time and said, we're here. And he said, unless you can weep for the city, I don't need you. Unless you cry, unless it disturbs you, just stay home. We only need people that it's, they're moved to the very core. And that's what I think God is inviting us into. I think being that kind of people also requires imagination. It requires imagination. Um, when I think of prayer, 
I, I tend to think of praying for a city, and I think about it this way, that uh, prayer fuels our work in the city. It fuels our heart for the city. Uh, it uh, gives us compassion. It helps us discern our role. Um, but one thing that I think maybe needs growth in my prayer life, I wouldn't just say maybe, I know it needs growth in my prayer life. And maybe the thing in your prayer life that also needs growth is imagination. Imagination is one of those words that, uh, that probably carries with it a lot of different ideas for you. Uh, but I'll try to describe it in a simple way. When I pray, I often fall very short of what probably God desires to see me pray for. So when I pray for a relationship, let's imagine in your life there's a broken relationship somewhere. When you're praying for that relationship, often I just go, God, will you heal that? God, will you do what you could do? Maybe there's something specific you're trying to pray for. But to pray with imagination is to pray in such a way that you are actually describing what it would look like to have that relationship completely restored. To pray with such faith, with such like creativity, that you're imagining what this city would look like if it was fully flourishing. I mean, that's what shalom is, right? We're to pray to the Lord for shalom, that we might experience it and that the city might experience it. That means flourishing, wholeness, completeness, everything put to right. So when we pray, we don't just pray like, Lord, will you help people who are in need of food? Can we pray and imagine what it would be like for everyone in the city to have their physical needs with food met? And what would that look like? What would that do for us? Could we pray in such a way that every area of the city were dreaming and imagining what it would look like for it to be fully within the reign of God? fully expressing all that he desires for it. I wrote down some areas that we could be praying for because, see, in the Hebrew word worldview, God's saving and healing and a shalom means we're praying not just for souls, but for schools and streets and healthcare clinics and any and everything. Praying for the arts and business and church and education. I even included things that we've probably never for, prayed for before in our life, like the waste management and uh, departments of street and sanitation. I mean, think about it. When was the last time you prayed for that? But the fact of the matter is, you would know, like today, if the entire waste management system in Spokane was ruined. You would. That would not be shalom. It would not be set straight. I mean, it's kind of a joke, but it's not. Because each and every area of the city has so many layers to it. And sometimes when we think about transportation, this is what we think about. I'm sick and tired of this stupid potholes. Can't we figure out potholes? Right? But we don't think about the 40 people we pass that are sitting there waiting for a bus, and that might, they might lose their job if they don't get there on time. We don't think about it. We just jump in our car or our second car or our third car, and we turn it on and we go. Because we're not as concerned about the plight of others. But what would it look like if everyone had their transportation needs met in the city? What would it look like if everyone had their relational needs met in the city? Are we praying with such imagination and creativity that we're inviting God to speak and do and act 
and participate in a way that brings complete health and wholeness to everyone in our city? Or are we just worried about, man, my car didn't start the way I wanted it to? Or somebody dinged it in the parking lot, what the heck? Right? Or, or any other number of issues that, yes, they're at some level of problem, but far, far selling us short of what God intends and desires to do in this city. So may we be a people that not only engage, may we be a people that do that together, and may we be a people who become all that God is inviting us to be as we pray with imagination. Would you stand with me?